Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone, and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Now, let's get started. Today, we're going to be talking about parenting and roles and discipline and positive discipline in parenting as well. Um, to do that, I would love to introduce my guest, um, Dr. Janice Johnson-Diaz. Here, join me today. How are you going today? I am well. How are you? Well, good morning to you, as it is good, good evening morning. to me. Yes, yes. <laughs> Time zones are definitely playing a part, big role here today. <laughs> um, yeah, so would you like to sort of introduce yourself to the audience and talk a little bit about what you do specifically? Yeah, I'm happy to. So I have many hats. I am Jamaican. So there are lots of jokes about Jamaicans having 10 jobs. Um, my primary job up until two years ago, um, but it is still my job is as an associate professor of sociology and criminal justice at the City University of New York, John Jay College of Criminal Justice. And I am also the author of the book, Parent Like It Matters, How to Raise Joyful Change-Making Girls. And finally, probably uh, a big hat that uh, encompasses both is that I'm the president and founder of the Grassroots Community Foundation, which is a public health and social justice organization that trains and develops girls to become change makers. Wow. And how, what got you into, into talking about this and to being something that, um, into wearing so many hats, as you say? Well, um, many things got me here, but I would say that the foundations of who I am and the work that I do, whether it is as a formal professor or a writer or philanthropist, um, really comes from the kind of early training and love and support of my community. I am from a really rural community, Retreat St. Mary, in King, um, outside of Kingston, Jamaica, really on a parish um, that not many people know about in proper, unless you know reggae, you might know the artist Capleton, um, of just 433 people. And I grew up in a community that really valued um, supporting each other. And I emigrated to the United States in 1984 um, to a different kind of social condition. But I had the luxury of being surrounded by really wonderful educators um, and being influenced by them. And that has been a continuous thread in my life um, as a person who has left a really poor country to come to a wealthy country, but one that was marred with inequality. Um, I try to take the lessons of community that I grew up with and to bring it to this kind of larger social space. Um, and, you know, having been trained in sociology, I've learned a lot about the way in which we can be levers for action. Um, and I try to make all of those things real um, in, my, in my life. 
Wow, that sounds that sounds like a really big um, journey to get you to where you are, and it sounds very inspiring as well, actually. <laughs> it does feel a bit big. I think um, I turned fifty this year, and um, a part of turning fifty is a lot of reflecting about how you got to the places that you got to. Um, yeah. It didn't feel big um, along the way. Along the way, I felt like I was just doing a thing that my heart desired and I did another thing that my heart desired and then when I looked up I was 50 and had been doing a bunch of things um <laughs> all in the name of women girls and justice um and so my it sounds like my life was much more organized than it really was it was really just having an open spirit and really feeling that I needed to be trained that I needed to do my part um wherever I can and however I can. And so uh, the story sounds better than probably the journey itself. <laughs> you do not look 50. I can tell you that right now. Trust me, you do not look 50. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so talking a bit more about you, we're going to play a little icebreaker um, to start off the recording and just sort of getting icebreaker. to know you <laughs> instead of outside the topic as well. Um, so the first, when I say this sort of topics, just sort of come up with the first thing that sort of comes to your head. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a tricky game, but, um, cause so many things can pop up at the same time, but yes, okay, I'll start. We'll kind of <laughs> I will, I will do my best. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. All right. So number one is book. Shelf. Okay. Um, how about movie? Maverick. I just came from seeing Top Gun. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> How about podcast? Oh, hard. I think a podcast is very hard um, <laughs> in so many ways. I think it's it's hard. It, you know, the idea of just talking and I don't know how podcasters do it. Um, it's It feels exciting. It feels like the ante on radio is up a little bit more. Um, so <laughs> hard. <laughs> okay. <laughs> how about a role model? No one. Um, I struggle with the concept of role models um, mm -hmm. a lot. I struggle with it for myself. Um, my daughter gives this beautiful answer to role modeling, which I agree with, but still off, which is she tries to take qualities from different people in order to do that. But I think that I struggle with it because um, what happens is that there is a tendency to elevate people in a way that makes them superhuman. And much of my work and even the conversation we'll have today is to keep people from either being superhuman or inhumane because both takes away from their humanity. And I think sometimes role modeling um, can do a similar thing. And so, I struggle with it. Wow, that's a really good answer, actually. <laughs> How about um, the last one is course? Correct. Um, I often feel like what happens um, when you're on a particular course is um, course correction is difficult. Um, and people tend to stay on a course longer, not just simply because they don't know how to pivot, but it's the idea that you should see a thing through 
that you shouldn't be a quitter. Um, and that too, I probably struggle a lot with because I have made and remade myself so many times and that has not always been met um, with grace. Um, but uh, I, I think about course correction and what it means, um, especially as a caregiver, as a person who's had to coach young people, which is to let them know that it's okay. It's okay to pivot. That's one way. It's okay to also get off the road you're on. Um, and it's okay to feel lost, even if you are staying on a particular course. Wow. That's, that's, I'm speechless. That's such an incredible answer as well. Sorry. <laughs> um, I love every single one of your answers so far. Honestly, that's, that's too good. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to start talking about the topic that we've brought you on here to talk about today. Um, so for the first question, what do you think parenting is? Because there's so many definitions. What's your definition? I felt like this was the absolute hardest thing. It's probably why I think podcasts are hard. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I realized I wrote a whole book on parenting and I don't think I specifically didn't exactly define what is parenting in the book, even though I use kind of the way in which Latin, I went to Latin Academy in Boston, the way that um, the kind of, you know, epistemological beginnings of the word parenting, um, which means to bring forth. And I think I think about parenting as bringing forth with care, um, that parenting is a thing that people who are not necessarily bio folks who gave birth to or adopted um, children can do is that parenting is a is a process of bringing forth with care um, the best in children um, and helping them bring the best of themselves forward. Um, I probably more align parenting with coaching um, than I think most people would exactly enjoy um, because I think coaches are really very good at bringing forth with care the best inside of us. But I think of parenting in that similar vein. So it's not more so like disciplining. It's more in a way of mentoring. It is in a way of both mentoring and um, and coaching and mm -hmm. um, helping to excavate what is inside of us that may not be known to us, um, but doing it with the practice of care. Um, and, I, and I recognize parenting to be a really long-term endeavor. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think I really knew that when I started. Um, I think I could say it, but I don't think I really could say the meaning of it, that parenting is both a, it's a journey for the parent as well as the people who are being cared for. Um, in my foundation, we actually rarely use the word parenting, um, and we often use the word caregivers um, because of the real heavy emphasis on whatever it is that we're trying to do, that care is understood in it. Um, but I do think of it as bringing forth with care, 
Um, but I do think, think of it as also laborious. Um, it is definitely work. Um, yes. it's, it's, it's all kinds of levels of work. It's emotional work. Um, it's physically taxing. Um, it's clearly financially taxing. Um, but it is, it is a labor, um, uh, while you try to bring forth um, the best of yourself and of young people with care. Okay. So what do you think expectant parents need to be aware what, aware of in the transition to parenting? Oh, from from being a human? Um, yes, a happy, being an individual. Non-parenting human, an individual <laughs> to being a parent? Um, yes. You know, I think the the preparation is if I if I if I could speak to like the universal preparation is that I would probably say something that sounds cliche-ish, which is know yourself, um your your clearest heart, your deepest intention, your challenges, is that so much of the way we think about parenting is about what we do with and for children rather than what we need to do with and for ourselves. And um, I know that expectant parents are going to prepare rooms and bank accounts and housing and um, a whole host of external things, but really the biggest work is preparing yourself um, to be vulnerable, to be in tune with yourself, um, and to be emotionally resilient such that you can prepare yourself for this journey. Um, The other thing that I hope expectant parents will do is to assess their ability to learn because parenting is also um, a learning endeavor. It's learning about this person um, or persons, and it's learning a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. So with that, how would you um, get a, pers- a person to be aware? What are some qualities that they would need to possess or like recommended to possess? before? Yeah. So um, in my book, I have one really big activity that I ask caregivers to do, which is to take this survey called the ACEs survey, the Adverse Childhood Experience Survey. I think it's really important that caregivers to be are aware of their own um, traumas um, and how that might trip them up. Um, as they begin to care for others, mm-hmm. um, that that preparation is is useful. And it doesn't mean that once you know the number of ACEs that you have, because as we know, child, adverse childhood experiences impact the way we, we give care to children um, and to others. But it is really important, I think, that caregivers be aware of where they stand in relationship to their own traumatic and childhood experiences. Um, I think wherever caregivers are, um, I encourage this, and I, again, I'll probably repeat this point several different ways, is that caregivers recognize that the social environment that they are raising their children, especially from zero to five, that it's an environment they're willing to make an investment in, is that children are not just raised in houses, 
Um, they are raised in communities. And if caregivers want healthy children, they're going to have to make some investment beyond the four corners of their own home. So um, those are the two kind of big categories, I would say, that caregivers, expecting caregivers should be prepared to do and they should assess where they are on those things. So having a, so it's mainly not about just about how you raise your kids. It's more about the people that you have around them as well. Yeah, it's the environment. Yeah, Yeah, because um, parenting um, and caregiving, we want it to feel like we have some control Mm -hmm. and that it's us. Um, That, you know, I'm so-called mother, I'm so-called father, and uh, what I do and say is going to have the singular biggest impact on your child. But it turns out children are social beings and they have to leave your home um, and they will go to playgrounds, they go to bookstores, they'll go to schools, they'll go to supermarkets. um, And you want those environments to be safe and you want them to reflect um, opportunities for your children's best self to come forward. And so you have to be socially connected and invested in those spaces in order for you to get the return on investment that you want, which is a healthy child. Um, so, you know, the the notion of parenting as a solo endeavor um, that is done by one or two persons, um, I would say disavow yourself of that um, as an expectant parent and recognize that you are entering the most socially connected process ever. Um, and you are going to find yourself in relationship with more people than you could ever imagine, um, simply by virtue of the fact that your child is a, is a living social being. Okay. Well, that's, um, that's definitely something to be aware of. I think definitely think the environment is a big space. Um, growing up, I definitely, I moved around quite a bit following my dad's work, following his job and, I never stuck in one space long enough to build that kind of community in itself until now, until I'm an adult and I'm starting to build that from scratch. And it is, it, it does definitely does have a huge influence on you. And I think recognizing it, the positives and negatives of the community that I'm in definitely gets me aware of it as it as it is because not everyone's gonna not every community is gonna have a positive they're always gonna have there's always gonna be that negative there as well so yeah there's a lot of negative I, I think that that for me I um I live in a town that has a tremendous amount of negative there are lots of positives but it has a lot of negative and um Sometimes my friends are in awe that I've chosen to do social justice work in my actual neighborhood because of those negatives, but it's precisely because I have a child here. It is precisely that if I want to have a healthy child, um, despite the hardships, is that I have to do and create spaces just like I would take things out of her reach that could harm her when she was young. I would secure that is a necessary condition too. Um, And as a person who moved around, probably not as much as you did, is that I saw how important environments are because you could be in an environment for a year or two and 
you would think that your family's house would be the safest, but that year or two can be so impactful in terms of how you see people, what you have access to, whether or not you're put in a situation of danger. Um, and I think caregivers so often think that their home is the singular central place for um, caregiving activity, and it is just one of the places. And um, those other spaces, again, schools, playgrounds, supermarkets, et cetera, bookstores, they shape a lot of the way we see the world. And our children take in a lot very, very early. So we ought to be mindful. And caregivers, I hope expectant parents will recognize that their home really matters. What occurs in their home, having um, amicable relationships within the walls of their home are really essential for children's health and well-being, but also being in social spaces that are equally amicable um, are going to affect your child and your children as well. Holding that discipline, how would you define positive discipline? Well, you know, so I, um, when I saw this term, I went and I read up like every good sociologist would do. Um, and, um, and Jane Nielsen's kind of five um, anchors of positive discipline. I have to say that I think about discipline in a very, um, I don't know, in a very specific way. Again, because I'm a sociologist, I think a lot about how these things interact with the social environment. And I think about discipline as really a code, a code of behavior that is infused with morals and values. Um, and that children are taught how to um, understand and make sense of this code or these codes and then how to adhere to them, um, especially in ways that enhances their well-being. So I I don't write. It's so funny because what what the reason I said yes to being on this podcast is because so many people ask me about discipline. They're like, you don't mention discipline at all in your book. There has to be something that you have to say about discipline, and I have a lot to say about mm-hmm. discipline. Um, and I think the concept of positive discipline makes sense to me. Um, but I don't think of parenting as um, an enterprise where discipline is the biggest deal. Um, I've not had to punish my child a lot. I've not had to punish children under my care a lot. Um, but I've had to explain to children why certain codes of behavior are really important to adhere to. Um, and I've had to help them really understand as they behave in ways that are not in alliance, um, in alignment with that code. Um, and I feel like we co-create. There are certainly certain codes um, of behavior and morals that I really held that just didn't hold for my child um, and for the children. But I do think that this, this act of mutual respect, this act of kindness, this act of social integration, that these things are really important for children, that sh- children shouldn't be disciplined in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and they certainly should not be told because I told you so as the singular response. Mm -hmm. And my favorite part of the way Nielsen describes positive parenting is thinking about discipline and its long arc. 
what do we want the long-term consequences or benefits of discipline to have rather than um, just singularly thinking about the short-term course of action? Okay. So it's more, it's in a sense of still coaching, coaching them between right and wrong rather than actually saying, okay, you're doing this wrong and I'm telling you, you're doing this wrong. Yes. So my mother used to do, I would say that I don't think she would have considered herself having, um, being a positive uh, person who uses positive discipline. But what she used to say is um, in Jamaican Patois, she was like, whenever I would do something that was simply out of order, she would say, do you know the difference between right and wrong? Why you choose wrong? Um, And sometimes I didn't know because what she had defined as wrong made perfect sense to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And that question, even though sometimes it felt like it was rhetorical, was super helpful to me because she was like, did you know you weren't supposed to do that? Sometimes we think children know because, again, we can't be we can't prescribe every situation that a child gets into. And we assume that they did a thing that they were clear on. So she would always kind of ask me, did you know? And sometimes I really, I didn't know. I didn't know it was that big a deal. I didn't know it mattered that much. I didn't know that the consequences could be that grave, right? Um, and oftentimes it was around the consequences. So like, um, you know, this is pre-cell phone. So my mother would say after five o'clock at the end of our street, we were in a neighborhood where we were only two black families in a white neighborhood when we moved to Boston. So we're leaving an all black country. And she said, after five o'clock, when the dust came down, I should take a cab, right? About a, a three-fourths of a mile, I should take a cab home. And she said, call me on the phone first and then take the cab. And so sometimes I just wanted to keep the money. So I just walk instead. Sometimes I would forget to call. And um, she would just get very upset. And I did. I made it home safely. So I ne- I didn't understand the reason why, yes, she gave me these rules, but they felt like they were arbitrary in many respects. Why must I call you? I'm, I'm you know, I'm 16. I can, I can make it to the house on time. But she worked all the time. So knowing where I was going to be meant that if something went awry, she had a timestamp of when I arrived. And that was a security measure for her because of her own anxieties about violence and little girls going missing. I didn't know any of those things. She only told me to do a thing. So when she asked me why I didn't do it, I was like, it's not a big deal. But when she contextualized it, then I was able to make sense of her worry, right? And even if I were going to break it, I had more information than I did previously. So um, this, I think, is an important feature of positive discipline that matters and that I really like about the way it has been described, which is giving kids more information so that they can understand um, the point of view of, of those who care for them. Yeah. I always I always think that as well, like growing up, probably similar, not to that extent, but just um just oh I forgot to call or or I just didn't I was too busy I forgot to let you know that I got there and until now I only found out that it's because she just wants to know like what you are like timestamp exactly know where you are 
because of situations that can happen. But growing up, you didn't think of it. Seems like nothing. I was like, why is she so bad? It's like, (laughs) if I had known why you were worried, then I probably would have, like, I would have let you know a little bit more. Um, Yeah, I'm still probably not going to let you know. I mean, that's the thing. It's just there may be better behavior. It may still be deeply imperfect. But um, I think that that kind of exchange Mm -hmm. is really, really helpful for children. Um, But I think too many adults miss that step altogether because they're like, I told you so, and this is sufficient. And it's like, no, mutual respect is an important part. Um, And information and context is an important part. Yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely important when, if the child knows, okay, this is exactly why I am worried. You need to be careful of this. I think a lot of parents um, are worried of like scaring their child. But in a way, it's sort of not letting yes. them know scares and them I anymore. think that they, sh- they should. <laughs> yeah, I, a lot of caregivers don't want to tell children hard realities. Um, and they're age-appropriate ways to tell hard realities, mm-hmm. right? Um, at 16, you can tell me that girls get abducted and... Um, and that there are a lot of girls missing in the nation. But probably at seven, probably too hard, right? But you can find ways of telling me at seven that you worry, that you worry, you worry. You can say you worry. And children are like, well, I don't want you to worry. Children don't want, if you're raising child that has a good attachment, um, that you have laid out some foundations for them. They don't want their caregivers to worry. They want to be cared for and they want to care as well. Yeah, no, 100%. But at 16, definitely tell me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> definitely tell me. Like know the whole the whole picture about what's going on. Yeah. Um, yes. So what would you say are the roles in positive discipline in caregiving? Well, I think that there are a couple of roles. I think that the rules um, of the game are set by the caregivers. Um, And that needs to be clear to children. And I think people worry about um, that power uh, position. Children and adults do not have equal power. And an attempt to suggest that they do, I think, always runs into problems for both children and adults. The power differential is just, it's great. Um, As an adult, you have the governing power. You have the veto. Um, You have the power of the pen and the dollar. Um, And children need to, to understand that with great clarity. That does not negate um, respect. Respect can still occur, uh, still occur even in a power differential. So I think that children should be aware of their standing, but they should also be made aware about how respect works. And respect is given, and all um, of life deserves respect. They don't have you don't have to work for respect. Mm-hmm. Respect is a given um, thing, and children should be aware of that. I think that those two roles um, are really clear. I think being informed about um, what is happening in the world is the responsibility of the caregiver. 
Um, and this to me, caregivers who decide that they're going to be non-learners um, put children at risk and in fact raise children who are not likely to be empathetic um, or um, good citizens of the world. And so caregivers need to be uh, informed about a set of things. That is not. To, that doesn't mean that caregivers need to be doctors, right? They don't need to know everything about a staph infection or about the flu or et cetera, or every detail, but learners in terms of being willing to find information that can help children understand their social world. Um, I also think that one of the crucial role of children is to be learners themselves, is to discover um, information that they too can share. Because children have a bird's eye view into this youthful world that caregivers need to be curious about. Children are going into schools, they are going into places that caregivers might've gone to that school, might've been in that community, but they weren't there in this time in this moment. So children are seeing things with a different eye and that eye needs to be respected and it needs to be given um, opportunities to share. And caregivers need to see themselves as being curious learners about children's world. Similarly, caregivers should really be clear as to, um, as to what they share in terms of their anxieties with children. And I say that really in reference to the last moment, but into other things. So financial insecurities, emotional insecurities. Um, I think it's fair to share with children in age appropriate ways, but not in a way that makes children feel insecure that they feel like their home is going to disappear, their caregivers are going to disappear, and that they don't have stability. And so a part of the caregiver's role is to create a context of security at all levels so that children can be joyful and that they can live in a way that is much more peaceful mm -hmm. and childlike. So how, so definitely the role of the caregiver is to enforce some sort of a sense of um, understanding of the world to the child without the child discovering yes. it on their own and is it is it very is it a lot more negative if they discover it on their own without the caregiver's um, advice or understanding. Yeah. And I, I, I would like to amend, it's not that they won't discover it on their own, is that their discovery should be respected. I do think that there are things that caregivers need to have to help children be aware as they go into the world. So like caregivers here in the United States, um, they should inform children that there are inequalities in the world. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't surprise children in the United States, um, but it ends up being a surprise to children, you know, up until they get to college. They're like, are you really telling me that the United States is predominantly white? Mm -hmm. Like that one, that should not, <laughs> children should not have to wait mm -hmm. until they are 17, 18 to recognize that the United States is 70 plus percent white. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. 
are there poor people in the world, right? Like they're not just on television, that these are some of the things that children need to know and they should have a sense of why. There is a reason why the United States, for example, is predominantly white, just like there is a reason why Jamaica is predominantly black, right? These are kind of things that, and you should say them, but you should also help children read and learn about them so that they have that understanding rather than walk into situations where that is solely avoidable. In the United States, right, there's a dominant religion that people practice. Other religions are also practiced, but this is what is done. So these kinds of anchors, because we do we do prepare children, especially for school, we're saying you're going to have a teacher. This is going to be your teacher. If you have a question, you go to your teacher. If the teacher can't answer, you'll go to your guidance counselor. You go to your principal. We tell children a set of things, but around social realities, we we pretend that they are... Um, they are non-existent or that they will discover them somehow. Mm-hmm. And we somehow have decided, um, and this is both for uh, the place that I'm from and the United States, is that the childhood should be um, filled with ignorance. Um, okay. And a kind of ignorance that at one moment, as soon as you become an adult, there'll be this grand knowing. Um, And uh, I'm not sure how we got to that place that adulthood and grand knowing will occur because sometimes people just get older and they stay as ignorant as they once were. But we've made up this narrative uh, and I think it harms, it harms all of us. So my hope is that adults will tell children um, some basic social facts and they will encourage a discovery because those social facts will change over yeah. time. Because um, what was once true when I was young is no, no longer exactly. true. Exactly. No. Um, yeah. And that's okay. <laughs> no, I definitely grew up – like I grew up in a – going to Islamic schools. So um, – and a lot of my friends that I knew there, there was one – I remember specifically there was one field trip that we went to and it was going to the city, like a museum in the city. Um, And she was amazed. She was like, there's actually a river in the city. Like she's never even been into the city itself. And my mom was there with me and she and I just looked at each other like, she's like, she's never been outside of her community because her mom doesn't let her go. So there's that. Yeah. And the thing is, There's that. So a part of the reason why I really enjoy my daughter's work is that books give us opportunities to know even if we haven't experienced it. Right. So I the first time I was on a plane was when I was 12 years old, but we knew planes existed. Right. So not having experienced it yourself is not enough. And I think that that's the piece of a curious mind that caregivers really have to have for themselves and they have to have for their children. And they need to have that even around discipline, right? Which is like, where's the curiosity in trying to understand the unknown? Because we cannot expect to know every detail, right? We should know some fundamental details, but if we have a curiosity about knowing, then that's just really inviting. 
um, and that creates opportunities of understanding, which would allow for greater levels of empathy, uh, empathy and further justice in the world. But that curiosity is missing, mm-hmm. right? Um, because dogma, um, you know, do as I say, is so prevalent across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do wish, and I see parent as an opportunity to build curious people um, and to bring that curiosity forward. How do you think the whole do as I say sort of um, parenting method, how do you think that sort of impacted, would that have actually have an impact on today's children? I think so. I think that, again, the power is really great. Adults have tremendous power. Parenting has such power. I think the short-term effects of just do it. If I say to do this, do this. Do this game, do this thing. I think that the short-term effects are are likely to work. Um, and... Um, I just think that they're not likely to build healthy humans. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to be a series of enforcements, um, punitive enforcements that you will keep doing and you'll have to up the ante, right? Because as children become curious or try new things, they will do something that's considered egregious and then you will have to hammer them down even more and more. So then the, the enterprise of parenting becomes that of a warden. Mm-hmm. And it will hold yep. for as long as the child is there. But that's super tedious. The reason why we want healthy children is that it makes parenting super easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. a healthy child who understands the code of behavior will do the right thing. And then you're, you're, you're in a relationship with the child on such a different level. And this is, for me, a part of the reason why I'm even, you know, I can... I can talk about parenting with such glee is because when you have a well-disciplined child, it's the (laughs) easiest thing on the planet. Um, And then you're just like, oh, 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 right? (laughs) Like I can be friends Um, with my child. It's easier to be friends with them. Yeah. It is much easier to be friendly than a warden. I absolutely hate Mm -hmm. the task of of having a, you know, (laughs) lay down martial law. Uh, it just makes me tired. <laughs> so how do you think um, positive discipline impacts a child's, uh, further impacts a child's cognitive development? Yeah, so I, um, I, I thought a little bit about this. So as a sociologist, I try not to talk about people's brains too much um, <laughs> because sociologists... We like to look at what is happening outside, but there are a few things that sociologists and psychologists, um, places that we meet, and that's probably around the um, the 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 fight or flight, um, and what happens in the frontal lobe of of people's minds, is that it is really important that people feel the sense of belonging and this sense of um, attachment. You know, um, the psychologists who've done such great work on how early attachment shapes um, people's sense of community engagement and for sociologists, social cohesion, that really matters. But for me, I would say that the more that we engage in the kind of parenting 
that fosters empathy, mutual respect, and is connected, what we call are calling positive discipline, is the more likely we are to get young people who are not consistently in a fight or flight mode, who really feel like they can engage with others and connect with others. And that is going to improve their cognition and therefore improve their ability to learn and understand. Um, And we need that in order to have active, agentic um, humans and uh, participants in the world. Mm -hmm. And as we talk about positive discipline and how it affects, um, how do you think it will affect their behavior? A little bit more. Yeah, I think that what happens is that if children are appropriately held to standards of and codes of good behavior um, that considers others and considers themselves, considered others' health and well-being and their own health and well-being, and takes stock of the fact that they are a part of a community, then we're likely to see fewer. We're likely to see few fights, right? Like we're not going to see as much classroom disruption, which I know, you know, teachers across the board are concerned with, especially those before third grade. We're also likely to see um, fewer rates of the things that we see in adult behavior, which is, you know, homicides and other, uh, other kind of behaviors that harm. But for me, probably one of the things that we are less likely to see is self-harm, Um is that people who feel like they belong, people who feel socially connected, people who feel like they're aligned with passion and purpose because they have a sense of things inside of them that really came from their early socialization are less likely to probably use drugs, to engage in risky sex behavior, to um, harm or engage in suicidal ideation or suicidal attempts or even completion of suicide. So I do think that this this idea of how people um, how people are taught um, to respond to when they have um, not adhere to a set of rules are going to have a set of long-term consequences, both about how their mind develops, but also how they behave in relationship to themselves and to um, to the world. Mm-hmm. And how would that, like, as it impacts their behavior, does it also have a huge impact on, um, like, generation trauma and dealing with relationships in the future? So does it sort of, like, catch on further in? I think it's likely to, like I said before, I think when I ask folks to take the adverse childhood experience evaluation is that we know that the things, the traumatic things that happen to us. So let's say you don't use positive discipline and you use more punitive ways of getting your children to adhere to the codes of behaviors that you want, is that if those um, practices that you employ are harsh, are um, devoid of respect, make um, children feel displaced, um, and physically harms them with great recurrences, then that that it it would it would stand to reason that those practices would stay with them. And so as they become caregivers, 
they, and especially if they manage to be economically successful, which is what, at least in this culture, ends up being a greater measure of success, which is like, oh, my caregivers beat me and treated me poorly, but look at me now, I'm a CEO. Then you might think that this practice works if the goal of parenting is to have economically successful children. But I would say that the goal of parenting is not about economic success singularly. It is about raising really healthy humans um, and certainly having children who are able to provide for themselves financially um, such that they um, are not on the streets um, is, is an important part of a healthy person, but it's not the singularly most important part of of health and well-being. Economic success is one measure um, of of wellness. And I do think that that people will employ punitive discipline if if that has has been the way that they were disciplined when they were young. Um, So they have to unlearn that. That's that's a really good point. It's really interesting because even um, like you watch on YouTube and people who have become YouTubers and things like that. And like I was watching one very recently. She was kicked out of her house at 16 and she sort of built her, her built her life up. And now she's living in New York City in an apartment in a penthouse in New York City. And it's like, did you get there because that happened to you or because you wanted to, in spite of what happened to you? So Yeah, and it may be, and the thing is, by the time she's 50 and talking to you, she could tell a story that suggests that she's okay. See, this I think is the, those are the things that worry me, right? When economic success is such the big driver for um, what the goal of life is, is like, I have been beaten, I got thrown out, you know, I was treated like crap, but now look at me. I am, you know, I have a million or two followers, I'm doing great. And then all of a sudden we might look up and you will see that somebody has prematurely ended their lives. And we're like, but they were so successful. And we're like, if that is the way we keep thinking about success, then we will fail to understand what wellness is because it's clear. We've now had the series over the past three years of really financially successful people who are suffering at such deep levels. So what I hope is that if that YouTuber ever becomes an expectant parent, maybe before, is that that YouTuber engages in the work of healing so that they can employ new ways of caring for the new lives that they will bring forth. Because this obsession with financial success is a great, great risk um, to the health and well-being of children and to the society as a whole. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a really that's a really good um, aspect to look into, not just the economic side to it, but like also the mental space that this person has in their head. Um, Yeah. So what do you think are the most common obstacles that parents will face when implementing positive discipline? Um, You know, the child. (laughs) Right. Um, You know, the, the first obstacle is 
let's say you're a caregiver who's come from punitive discipline, right? Okay. If you've come from punitive discipline, there's sometimes a reflex, like you may have done all the work. You have decided that you're not going to be a person that, that hits a child. You're not going to be a person that yells too aggressively all the time. Is that the first is your past. Your past is a is a great obstacle because sometimes you will engage in practices that may be antithetical to your desires. Then there's the child itself. Um, the child or the children um, may just engage. They may they may have been influenced by other things that uh, their behavior seems outrageous, and you might think, "I just need to hit them. I just need to hit them. Maybe this once." I just need yeah. to hit them. Um, and so that is work in and of itself. The other work is uh, obstacle could be your own um, caregiving circle, whether that includes your caregivers who might be telling you to hit the child, to be more punitive, to engage in a set of practices. It could be your friends. Um, it could be the state. Um and the rules that the state has laid out about, because certainly um, parenting is not without its own legal recourse, um, especially in a hyper-surveillance state. So I think people have to be aware of the both the emotional obstacles, the social networks that can be, but also the child um, themselves and how that can, that, those things can all be obstacles to um, to being able to regularly practice positive discipline. No, that is, that is, um, I mean, the child will definitely have some big implements into how, <laughs> impacts into how you take it positively or not. <laughs> um, so going on to talking about the next segment of our show is sort of practice and habits. And so what is the positive discipline practice that you do to improve children's development? So I have a couple of different things. So, you know, I run um, a leadership group and um, I also have um, my own child who has participated over the years um, in that group. Uh, that's the Grassroots Community Foundations group of Supergirls. Um, I... You know, the children um, have all kinds of critique, but one of the things is that you have to talk to me. So if you do um, something that is against the codes, you have to explain it to me. And you have a couple of ways of explaining it to me. Um, I've gotten more creative over the years. You can talk to me. That is always uh, an option. Very few exercise that option. Um, you can video record, um, you know, your reasons why. You can also um, write a letter as to why. And um, the video recording and the letter writing, I think a lot of children prefer because then they don't have to look you dead in the eye <laughs> when, <No. laughs> they, when they tell you why they engage in a thing. Um, and if your actions harm the community, you have to apologize um, to the community. And so that has been my predominant uh, response to children who do not do um, what has been laid out and made clear to them. 
Okay. So what are three good things about this practice? Well, one is it, it gives me insight into what children know and don't know. Um, and it helps to remove the idea that they did it out of spite or they did it because they knew. It gives, it makes it clear what I need to make clearer and what course of action I need to take to make that clearer. Second, it gives them a voice, which is really important for my work of change making, is that at all point children need to recognize that they have a voice and that voice really matters. Um, mm -hmm. Even if I disagree with their voice, is that their voice should never be silenced. Um, and the third thing that I think it does for me, the practice is that there's always restoration, is that your actions are not singularly about you, okay. is that when you do something, it is connected to others and that you are in relationship at all time with others. And it is important for me and the work that I do that children think of themselves, but that they recognize themselves as being in context and in relationship with other people. Mm -hmm. And so what, with the positive, there was always negative. So what's some of the challenges that sort of occur when you practice? Oh, many. Um, <laughs> one is, the obstinance of not wanting to explain um, mm -hmm. is that it does take a lot of work um, to get young people to say why. And they are sometimes happy to say, I don't know why. I just did it. And so um, that is a pain in the butt um, because it can... It can take a while before they find the words for video, for conversation, or for letters to come up with the why, mm -hmm. and then to revisit the why. Um, then there are children who believe that their own behavior is not connected, that it is, you know, I just did it for myself. Like, you know, I didn't eat my lunch when I was supposed to. It's not that big a deal. Um and it is that big a deal because you are now hangry and that's the reason why you got mad and yelled at another child, right? Like it isn't just the harm that you do to yourself isn't just decontextualized. So a lot of negative is the pushback from children um, about what, you know, what they believe their actions and the consequences are. I think another big action is sometimes a pushback from caregivers who don't practice positive discipline and would rather just punish the child, just would rather be like, well, I told her she needed to listen to you, Dr. Janice, and she didn't listen to you. So I'm going to take away her phone. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's actually not useful at all, mm -hmm. right? Because she's in a group chat with other girls, they have a project they're working on. Now she's isolated and you have fractured her connection. So, um, you know, several things can come up in the act of, of trying to take the long way, which is positive yeah. discipline is the long way. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think this practice impacts your own parenting or your even your perception in life? 
I mean, I think that this practice for me is, um, it's been a labor. I was not raised fully with this. I made a decision that I would um, help my child um, be differently trained and coached and mentored than I was, that I would take the positive parts of the parenting practices that um, my caregivers employed, and I would bring those forward, and I would drop the beatings. Um, So I, you know, I got a beating almost every single day um, during my childhood. Um, And I would say 85% of them um, lacked rhyme or reason. I would say the 15% that had a cause um, could have been better handled with a conversation. Um, And if I were not a child who um, was so obstinate as I am, um, I forced my caregivers into explaining (laughs) why they were hitting me. Like, why are you actually hitting me right now? So, which was really helpful for me because I would just be like, you're choosing to hit me. And, um, and it did help having, asking immigrant parents why they're hitting you, um, is, is certainly bold. Um, but it's helpful because sometimes they don't know. Um, so, you know, for me, the, the disciplinary ways that I've taken is because I make myself learn a new way. I dreamed myself human and I thought through and practiced the act of talking with. Um, And it is labor intensive, but it's made parenting easier, right? Um, So... I keep doing it because it keeps making things better than worse. See, that's always that's always a bonus. Just makes it it sets everything up to in order to be easy later on. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's a hard so, investment though at the beginning. It's a hard yeah, investment at the beginning. It definitely sounds like it. Not going to be easy at the beginning for sure. <laughs> um, so we're going to sort of um, skip forward ahead to questions from audience just for to save time and to keep things rolling. Um, So there's just a couple of questions that um, some audience members have asked us. So how is positive discipline similar to authoritative um, parenting style or is it just completely different? No, I think that... um... So, you know, we know that authoritarian parenting style is not Mm -hmm. good. It's a punitive style. Um, I would say that positive parenting has uh, several components of authoritative uh, parenting, which is a recognition of who's in charge um, and a recognizing that just because you're in charge, when you're in charge, there's a lot of weight to being in charge, right? Which means that you're setting the ground rules for engagement. Um, where I think positive parenting, I think is a is a tool in an authoritative 
um, parenting practice. So it's not that it's at odds, is that you need several tools in order to be an authoritative parent, which is you need to recognize that just because you lead doesn't mean that those who you're leading are without voice. And positive parenting creates a space for that. Furthermore, just because you lead doesn't, um, it still requires that children feel like they belong and that they are connected to you and that there's some respect for them. Again, the power differential will not change, but respect is really critical. Empathy is really critical. Belonging is really critical. Um, and those things can exist. So I would say positive parenting is a tool um, in authoritative parenting practices. Okay. Um, what do you think about discipline practices in the past and now? So I think that there are a couple of things. Um, what I liked about what Jane Nielsen was talking about is that there is this, there's a struggle, um, especially for those of us who grew up with uh, more punitive practices, parenting practices, um, that sometimes we swing the pendulum so hard that we end up being really permissive <laughs> about everything goes um, <laughs> because we just don't want to be as harsh um, as our caregivers were to us. And um, there are a couple of things, and I think that it gets complicated because of the intersectional identities of children now, right? Like, you know, when I was young, there was no space for children to be transgender. There was no space for children to not be in whatever sex group they were deemed in. But now okay. caregivers have to think about that. Um, furthermore, the world wasn't so connected. So you have to think about what you're going to do about phones and internet access and all the rest of that. I mean, like, I feel like parenting is way more complicated because caregivers have to know so much more. And mm -hmm. young people are revolutionary. They are learning at the speed of light. And if caregivers are stagnant, we will just be misplaced. So I think that the, 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 the playground of parenting is really, really different now and is more complicated and requires us to be not only just greater learners, but to be way more empathetic. Like I thought, think some of us who were like, oh, I'm just not gonna hit my child. I'm good to go. We are not good to go. We have, to, we have so much more to consider in parenting than we ever did. Mm -hmm. um, because I grew up in a parenting practice where you could be fat phobic, homophobic, even if you didn't hit a child. You could say the most egregious things to children, um, assuming they would be okay. No, you cannot do that anymore. Um, and you should not want to, but that doesn't mean that you are still not conditioned to want to behave in those ways. So, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm really glad that my child is um, is a bit older now, even though as I try to train these younger kids, I'm like, wow, this is harder. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, perfect. Um, so for the last 10 minutes, I'd love to sort of give you an open mic just to talk about any projects that you've been up to. And it sounds like you're still working on a lot. So I would love to hear more about it. Okay, so I'm happy to talk about. So I am obsessed with um, parenting. 
uh, clearly. And <laughs> from a sociological standpoint, it is because um, I am deeply concerned about how ideas are formed and the saliency, the long-term impact of early ideas, whether or not those ideas are specifically articulated by the parents or caregivers or by the schools. So in sociology, we, we talk about early socialization and we know that moral development starts really early. Notions of justice starts really early. Um, and they last, right? Not every single thing lasts, but they last a really long time. So in this book, Parent Like It Matters, I really talk about wanting to lay the foundation for children and for caregivers to recognize joy and that joy can help children become change-making, right? Like they don't need a profession to make a positive contribution to the world. In book number two, I'm going to write about boys, And um, I want to write about the ways in which we um, parent boys and specifically how we parent boys to think about girls. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not just how we parent boys broadly. Again, I am very, very concerned about the position of women and girls in the world. This includes cis, transgender, right, queer Um, women and girls, but how those people who identify as men and boys, how are they understanding their relationship with people we call women and girls? What do they think of in terms of their roles and responsibilities around platonic love, around romantic love, around familial love? Um, What are the injuries that they have caused Etc. So I am collecting stories from women and girls, and um, looks like some some men and boys across their life course. So elementary school, middle school, high school, college, and adulthood of their relationship with men and boys, in order to understand what um, what injury or care men and boys have caused, and how they're making sense. Um, of those relationships. So this has me quite preoccupied because um, this this specific idea to talk to and think about boys' relationship with girls in a non-romantic way and across the life course um, is, 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 is both fun and hard. Um, so that is, that's, that's the current project that has a lot of my time and energy. Um, I'm doing some other work around period poverty and the need to provide and structure resources so that every place, everywhere, um, we treat periods like a natural um, occurrence, like we do go into the bathroom. So wherever there is toilet paper for free, um, that there should be menstrual products for free. So I continue that kind of advocacy across the world and recently formed a, a global menstrual equity council um, in five different countries um, in order to um, to make that work go forward. So that's, that's kind of what I've been up to. That sounds like a lot of work. It sounds very, very inspiring though, honestly especially the menstrual products. I definitely agree. 
It's on my part, I definitely agree with that. It definitely should be free. <laughs> yes. I'm surprised I'm surprised um, in the year 2022 it hasn't happened already. But um, I think it's so funny because I I I think people think that menstruation is an elected process. And I was like, I wouldn't elect it. No one would elect it, right? Um so and I also I also recognize that um I've recently had some conversations with men where I'm like, how many of you have prayed for a woman to have her period? Where you have prayed that it comes, where you have hoped on the planet Earth, please let her have her period. Many men have prayed for periods to arrive, more so mm-hmm. than women. Um, and it appears that people do not know that all of us humans are here because somebody missed their period. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's a, there are these small educational gaps about periods that I. It, it, you know, it's like an epiphany. People are like, oh. And I was like, yeah, no period, no humans. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. Like, if the person does not have the capacity to menstruate, they likely don't have the capacity to give life. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Like, exactly. so you don't want. It, it was just, so it is. So for me, I think. Um, while we remain frustrated, that we know that the biggest obstacle, so why I said these two things in the conversation around boys, is that men and boys hold a lot of power, but are uninformed about mm-hmm. the way menstruators and women and girls' bodies operate because we, again, um, socialize men and boys not to think necessarily about women and girls, but their actions becomes policies and laws. And so the injury that sometimes men and boys cause by virtue of their policymaking is really important. And so for me, trying to trace um, how we get to the places that we've gotten to, how do we get to... um, laws that obstruct choices, you know, um, workplaces with inequity, et cetera. Like, how do we get there? I like to start at our beginnings so that we can begin to see life um, and our ideas, the early ideas and how they stay salient. So what is a girl? Should we care? Do they have the same power as I do? Can they do what I do? Um, Yeah. Where do, where do we form that? It's similarly for girls. So we know a lot about how girls think about these issues, but we know very little about how boys think about these matters. So I'm trying that's to take that true. on. No, and that's a very that's a very true point actually. And it's um it's something that we don't talk about that much. That's not being talked about. And I'm glad that there are people out there who are talking about it now in the year 2022, but still any step forward is a step forward anyway. So I think any journey we'll that take, we take we'll is take whatever we exactly, can get. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, it, it is very funny to me though, that I sometimes say like, given that all boys come from women, how is it mm-hmm. that they have more power? Yeah. It, there's, there's something amiss must have occurred. Um, yeah. Right? There's yeah, something. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. It's like and, they and have the power, but they don't see, they don't realize that the power affects their sister, their mother, 
So yeah. it's just there's a huge there's a huge gap between their understanding and what the actual world is. Yeah. So, so yeah. I want to trace that understanding. That's how I think yeah. about it. I want to trace the understanding because I think that um a lot of what we sometimes get to is that we assume intentionality um, from consequences. So we assume that men and boys are specifically engaged in trying to create um, systems of harm. And um, I'm I'm unconvinced um, that that's exactly true. Um, and as a, a researcher, it is my job to try to to understand and to ask questions that I don't know the answers to. So I don't I don't know um, how men and boys think about love or injury um, and how they come to think about these ideas and what these ideas mean for how they interact or engage um, with um, girls and women. So I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to get some answers as best I can. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And definitely I would love, I think everyone in the audience would love to see that journey and watch you go on, watch you go on that discovery. And yeah. Um, so is there a way that anyone that would like to contact you would be able to? Yes. Yes. So if you want to know more about my um, philanthropic work, you can go to grassrootscommunityfoundation.org. That's grass roots with an s communityfoundation.org um if you want to know more about just like me the full person in terms of my work as an educator as a strategist and as a philanthropist you can go to my website which is the dr janice j-a-n-i-c-e dot com um and both of those places there are two separate emails um that you can reach me on in the more casual way, I'm on LinkedIn, um, which I sometimes um, I'm great at. I've just recently written an op-ed that seems to be getting a lot of attention on police in there. Um, and the fun place where I hang out, where you can probably get me most of the time, is on Instagram um, at Dr. Janice Johnson, um, because it's pictures. And pictures are always just kind of nice. Um, yes. and so <laughs> you can see my family, my dog, I answer my DMs. My life isn't so crazy that I have to pretend to be a faux celebrity. Um, but if you have intellectual questions, I can answer those, but feel free to email me anything that I can answer quickly. I'm happy to answer. Um, but the work, um, is visible in both those spaces. Okay, well, that's incredible. And it'll be amazing to actually see the journey. And I'll definitely, um, you'll be seeing a follow from me on Instagram for sure. So um, I would love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Janice, for coming on and talking about this. It's such an interesting topic. And hearing your perspective as well is greatly regarded as well. So thank, thank you. you so much for coming on. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you asking me. And I'm glad you got me to talk about discipline. So now whenever anyone asks me my thoughts on discipline, I'm going to reference the podcast so that they can get all those answers. They're like, you don't talk about discipline. Oh, but I do. I talked about it with Tina. You should go and listen to um, the segment on discipline. And then 
you know, so you have helped me satisfy um, a, a missing piece of my current book, Parent Like It Matters. Yay. So now that's free, free advertising for us too. So that's perfect. Free. <laughs> yeah. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening today and definitely go and check out Janice and follow her journey. It sounds like a really interesting one and it's definitely not over anytime soon. So you'll see her go so, so far with everything that she's going through. Um, yeah. And thank you everyone for listening and have a good day. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast. Produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 Life Management Perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, share, and subscribe to our channel that other people can find it and we can continue to provide quality content. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent and thanks for tuning in.